You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It was December 23rd, nearing Christmas, 1777. A heavy snow began to blanket Valley Forge, a snow that would continue for three days. Only a few log huts were up. Others were in various stages of completion. Most of the army was still gathered in the open fields or in the woods or in whatever shelter they could create, huddling near their fires. Most of their waking hours were spent either digging trenches, building earthworks for defense, felling trees for cabins, or traveling with patrols scavenging for food for the encampment. Washington was transferring his quarters to a small field stone cottage on Valley Creek while his personal guard erected shelters nearby. Two days later, the troops, their wives, their children, and the rest of the Valley Forge encampment filed from their makeshift shelters to receive a Christmas dinner of burnt mutton and watery grog. Many, with their own feet wrapped in rags, filed past sentries who stood quietly, also without boots in many cases, who were standing on their hats. Visually, it must have made a very depressing picture. I'll let you imagine the opposite scene in Philadelphia, while the British officers attended parties and plays scheduled for the holiday season, and the enlisted men lined up for turkey and ham. There wasn't one person there at Valley Forge who didn't know that that was going on just 20 miles away. According to one historian, that night, a Continental soldier from Connecticut's 7th Regiment, known to posterity only as Jethro, was found dead in his tent. His skin was as cold as the dirt floor on which he lay, and a crude autopsy attributed his passing to a combination of malnutrition and exposure. Jethro was the initial death recorded on the rolls at Valley Forge the first of many. That Jethro was one of the hundreds of freed black men at the winter encampment who had enlisted to fight for the cause of American liberty injects an even more tragic note into his demise. Although no soldiers' bodies have been found during excavations at Valley Forge, there can be no doubt that the bones of Jethro and others who died from exposure or starvation still rest there at the park. When disease became a major factor in the weeks to follow, those suffering were driven by wagon to Yellow Springs for treatment. There was a graveyard discovered halfway between Valley Forge and Yellow Springs, and we'll reveal the location of that graveyard as we go forward. That Christmas, sad as it was, still held hope for many. The Hardest Times, what the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph Ellis called the existential moment in the war for American independence, was still ahead. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and part two of The Spirit of Valley Forge, the true story of the greatest test of American spirit and determination. This is your host, John Hagedorn. To bring you up to speed, General George Washington's army of 12,000 has just begun to set up camp at Valley Forge, about 20 miles southwest of Philadelphia. 
His army is barely outfitted, most lacking shoes or boots, and sadly out of food. Valley Forge had been chosen for its defensive advantages, being mountainous, which offered their cannons and defense lines high ground, as well as its distance from Philadelphia, where the bulk of General Howe's British army was quartered. The British officers were quartered in some of the finest mansions in the city, and the food and drink was the best to be found anywhere. As you might expect, this was all known to the men and followers of the Continental Army, and morale in December and the following cold months was at an all-time low. One of the many unsung heroes of the American Revolution at Valley Forge was Colonel Timothy Bigelow from Worcester, Massachusetts. He was a blacksmith and one of the group of patriots known as the Sons of Liberty. He was a delegate to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. He had fought in the battles of Lexington and Concord and served as a colonel of the 15th Massachusetts Regiment of the Continental Army. He was with Benedict Arnold during his expedition to Quebec in 1775 and was captured there, remaining a prisoner of the British until 1776. He was released in a trade and made a colonel in 1777, participating soon after in the capture of John Burgoyne. He would later fight at Monmouth, West Point, and Yorktown. But this was March of 1778, and he was calling a meeting at his headquarters in Valley Forge to discuss the issue of abandoning the cause. That was the topic on every man's mind at Valley Forge. What are we fighting for, and why aren't we being given provisions? We're freezing and starving. Colonel Bigelow heard all that was to be said on the subject. Some of his men argued that Congress could not clothe or feed them, and they did not feel it to be their duty to abandon their families and homes, to starve in that cold climate. They had signed up to fight, not to sit and starve in camp. When all had been said by as many as wished to express their minds, Colonel Bigelow finally rose and said, "'Gentlemen, I've heard all the remarks of discontent offered here this evening, but as for me, I have long since come to the conclusion to stand by the American cause, come what will. I have enlisted for life. I have cheerfully left my home and family. All the friends I have left are the friends of my country.' I expect to suffer with hunger, with cold, and with fatigue, and if need be, I expect to lay down my life for the liberty of these colonies. Those words, spoken from the heart of a true patriot, still ring out powerfully across the centuries. The Daughters of the American Republic helped to finance a monument to Colonel Bigelow, which stands in the corner of a small old cemetery in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it should be known that Montpelier, the capital of Vermont, still bears the name that Colonel Bigelow gave it. It wasn't long after Colonel Bigelow's meeting that a large herd of cattle was driven into the camp from New Jersey and Connecticut. That's a long drive. Worcester had sent Colonel Bigelow's regiment 62 sets of shirts, shoes, and stockings as their proportion for the army. Other towns did their part. Worcester sent 78 pounds in lawful money, which was taken up at the Old South Church after divine service. Similar help was being sent to other regiments from other states. The people back home were waking up to the fact that the men were facing the hardest of times. Churches and civic organizations rallied to the cause. If the government couldn't do it, the people could. America's always been that way in a crisis. As mentioned numerous times, the shortage of food and clothing was critical in January-February of 1778, but that shortage paled in comparison to the medical woes that plagued the encampment. The only real hospital in the region was in Philadelphia, and that was being used by the British. Washington had to commandeer every large building he could find and convert them into hospitals, in addition to having the massive three-story Washington Hall Hospital built out near Yellow Springs, about ten miles from Valley Forge, the only federally funded construction Washington was able to get. Barns, warehouses, churches, courthouses, general stores, pottery shops, and even a linen mill were converted to hospitals. These medical buildings were at first used to accommodate wounded soldiers from Brandywine in Germantown, but quickly filled up with sick men from Valley Forge. Many came down with scabies, a condition that brings a constant itching of scabs to cover most of the body. It's caused by lice as well as unsanitary living conditions. The winter weather and poorly built huts, combined with close sleeping conditions, brought on other sicknesses. Others suffered severe cases of typhus, dysentery, diarrhea, flu, rheumatism, and pleurisy. 
Almost all of the soldiers who developed gangrene lost their legs, feet, or hands and arms. In the overcrowded hospitals, disease spread quickly. Many doctors and nurses there died or deserted. Ninety percent of the soldiers in one Virginia regiment died in one hospital. One-third of all the soldiers sent to a makeshift hospital in Bethlehem perished. Half the soldiers in wards in a hospital in Lidditz died. One-fifth of all the North Carolina soldiers died of disease. By March 2nd, Washington was told that only 30% of the men in his army were still fit for duty. As we'll hear in a few minutes, that was exactly the time when a parade inspection was ordered and only 5,000 men of the original 12,000 appeared standing. That was the newly arrived Baron von Steuben's first look at Washington's Continental Army. In January, Washington had approached General Wayne with new orders. Food was nearly non-existent. The men were starving, or at the least suffering from diseases connected to malnutrition. Most of the farmers in the area were Quaker, and most of them were pacifists. The British had already purchased much of their harvest and livestock with silver, and they were only too glad to get the payment in coin. The best the Continental Army could offer was promissory notes, which could only be cashed by the will of Congress. Washington told Wayne that he would now be the general in charge of foraging for food and supplies. Wayne, according to legend, replied that he was a battlefield commander whose job it was to lead the army into battle, and not a food gatherer. Washington tersely reminded Wayne that if he didn't bring back food and supplies, he wouldn't have an army to lead in just a few weeks. He left him with orders to seize food and supplies at gunpoint if necessary, and to travel with an armed detachment of soldiers on horseback, as well as drovers to load and drive the supply wagons. Wayne started the next day, and within a week was able to return with badly needed supplies and food. As each week went by, they had to range out further and further from the encampment, first twenty miles out, then thirty, then fifty miles out. Scouts were sent to inquire of certain farms. If they were Tory supporters, nearly all of the stock and food were taken, and just enough was left to get them through the winter. If any member of the household was serving with the Continental Army, only half of their food and supplies were requisitioned. Both sides were given promissory notes redeemable through Congress. Wayne knew that the chance of them ever receiving any payment were slim, but he had an army to feed, and this was war. Wayne had to plan each expedition like a full-blown military exercise. If word leaked out ahead of them what direction they were taking that day, the farmers would drive their cattle, sheep, and pigs far into the woods where they couldn't be found. They'd clean up their smokehouses and bury the contents, and then they'd tell Wayne straight to his face that thieves and raiders had hit them the day before. But Wayne's scouts were well-trained and particularly effective at sniffing out allegiances. One scout posed as an itinerant Methodist preacher, once he had scouted out a likely source, a squadron of dragoons would ride ahead, blocking the roads, and then he and his men would sweep down on the farm before dawn. Their goal? 9,000 pounds of meat per day, on the hoof were smoked and cured, two tons of flour, wheat, rye, or oats for the baker, and any dried fruits or picked vegetables they could find, as well as vinegar and sauerkraut for the hospitals. Tools, especially shovels, were desperately needed for the building of huts and fortifications. Morale was at its lowest point in Valley Forge in January of 1778, when Washington received one of his greatest morale boosters with the arrival of Colonel Daniel Morgan and his riflemen from up north. Morgan was a big man, as were the men who fought with him, Virginians, who dressed in woodland garb and carried a vitality and spirit that provided a shot in the arm for the entire camp. Morgan's riflemen were legend in the Continental Army, having been one of the reasons for the Army's stunning victory at Saratoga, and being the first Virginians to fight in Boston. They had started the war as a rowdy and undisciplined bunch, but their expert marksmanship and undeniable courage in the line of fire had made them legend. Washington met with two of his most trusted leaders that night, Daniel Morgan and Colonel Green, soon after Morgan's arrival, and it wasn't long before the conversation turned to General Gates. As the story is told, Washington welcomed Morgan to Valley Forge, and Morgan, glad to have left Gates's command, said of Gates, "'That fat little sparrow is not to my taste as a commander.'" Recognizing the obvious fact regarding officer protocol, that it is improper to allow Morgan or any officer to speak ill of one of Washington's commanders, Washington said, 
"'I should like to hear your account of Saratoga, Colonel Morgan. "'Most of Congress, from what I hear, and much of the nation, "'feels that Mr. Gates is our best hope for victory.' "'Morgan replied, "'By God, the hero of Saratoga!' "'Well, of course it was simple to see how his reputation would come bursting out of that place. "'He's down there in York right now, no doubt filling them with stories of his grand exploits. "'And Sparrow is too kind a word, George. "'The man is a vulture. "'He lives off the efforts of everyone else. "'Keeps himself out of danger while his men do all the work. "'That little turnip wouldn't know a line of battle if it trampled him under its boots.' Hero? The heroes of that fight were Benedict Arnold and Enoch Poor, and old Ebenezer Learned. My rifleman played some smart role as well, I'll admit. I had to seek out General Gates to get my order to advance. He was back in his headquarters having a card game with some captured British officer. He would rather spend his day reminiscing with a British prisoner than leading his men into battle. And damned if he didn't come prancing out on the field just when we had the enemy in full rout. Then he began to sprout all this talk. Glorious victory! Hero of Saratoga! I'd like to plant my boot right where he does his best work. Washington was stunned at this outburst, and looking at Green saw a smile creeping across his face. Green looked at Washington and said, Well, General, am I mistaken, or was that a smart bit of fresh breeze that just flew through this place? As the war continued, Morgan and Green as well as Lafayette, Anthony Wayne, and others, would continue to be the bedrock for Washington's command. The three men in whom Washington initially had the highest hopes, Benedict Arnold, Henry Gates, and Charles Henry Lee, not to be confused with Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee, would be his greatest disappointment. Charles Henry Lee arrived at Valley Forge in April of 1778 with the rank of Major General and an attitude that the Continental Army, commanded by Washington, could never win against the British. Lee was a close friend of Gates and had lobbied Congress for Washington's removal. He bore a grudge against Washington as well, since Washington was chosen over him to lead the Continental Army. Later, at Monmouth, Lee's lack of courage in the face of the Redcoats led to a major rout, nearly losing them the battle, and Washington demoted him on the field of battle, ordering him to leave the command. As for Arnold, you're all aware of the fact that he turned traitor. As to Gates... You've heard that story here in part one. The three, Charles Henry Lee, Benedict Arnold, and Horatio Gates, all wittingly at some point did more good for the enemy than for the patriots. Not that there weren't other traitors, like Dr. Benjamin Rush, but they're another story for another time. One more word about Nathaniel Green. By mid-January, it was patently obvious that the army needed a quartermaster general who could function in Congress to get the wheels moving, literally to bring desperately needed supplies to Valley Forge. Washington went to Green, and Green volunteered. He arrived in York with a bang. He would not accept no for an answer. He had no patience for bumbling and bickering, and immediately earned respect from the majority of Congress as a can-do leader. But respect wasn't all he earned. He also freely expressed his opinion of Washington's good leadership skills, and went to work destroying many of the lies which had been created by Conway and Gates. Green turned out to be the one-man sledgehammer which was needed to knock loose the rust in Congress. An unsung hero of Valley Forge, if there ever was one, was Green, a well-known hero of the Revolution. Things finally started happening for Washington. The talk stopped in York. The festering boil that the Conway Cabal had created quietly melted away. Food and supplies started coming to Valley Forge, and by April, a bakery employing 25 men and headed by a Philadelphia entrepreneur named Ludwig, made good on Washington's promise to bring a pound of bread a day to his soldiers. Ludwig's story is out there in book form if you search. And by the way, there's a statue of Major General Nathaniel Green in Washington, D.C., erected in 1979, as one of 14 revolutionary statues built in recognition of 14 of the men who aided most in the cause of liberty. Green has another one standing in Johnson Square in Savannah, Georgia which was completed in 1830. We'll return with more stories from Valley Forge right after these sponsor messages. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our story. I'm going to get to Baron von Steuben's arrival at the Valley Forging Campet and his impact on the organization and fighting ability of Washington's army in just a few minutes. But first I wanted to share a story about Washington that few people know. This one doesn't involve Valley Forge, but it does tell us a lot about the kind of man Washington was and why his men respected him so much. George Washington was known to have been a man who loved dogs and owned many. He was an avid hunter, and most of his dogs were hunting dogs. The Marquis de Lafayette was known to have sent seven stag hounds to George Washington as a sign of friendship. Photos and paintings of this breed show a likeness to what we know today to be greyhounds. In colonial times, these dogs were great hunters, but they were bred to hunt via speed and sight, and scent wasn't the key to their hunting ability. Sweetlips, Scentwell, and Vulcan were the names of three of Washington's stag hounds. Washington also owned black and tan coon hounds. These dogs were scent hounds, and those whose names were known were called Drunkard, Taster, Tippler, and Tipsy. There is a story to how and why he gave them these names, but I'll have to save it for another day. One source says that Washington bred the black and tan coon hounds with the stag hounds, which may have resulted in America's first foxhounds. Just a few months before Valley Forge, in July of 1777, British General William Howe moved his forces toward Philadelphia in an effort to seize that city, which was then serving as the revolutionary capital for the Patriots. By September of 1777, Washington and the Continental Army suffered a couple of serious defeats. Cornwallis successfully marched into Philadelphia and claimed it for the British, so American spirits were low. Since Philadelphia was successfully claimed, General Howe arranged for the next move for the British and sent his men off to Germantown. With winter approaching, Washington felt he had time for one more attack and thought the British arriving at Germantown were vulnerable. Washington's plan was a brave one, and if it had been successful, it could have made a huge difference in the war. However, Washington overestimated his men's preparedness, and fog made the job almost impossible. The men could not coordinate their movements because they could not see what was happening on the battlefield. The British were again successful, assuring that Philadelphia would remain in British hands for at least another year. After the battle, a small dog was found on the battlefield. One of the American soldiers picked up the dog and saw from his collar that he belonged to the British General Howe. The men took the dog to Washington and asked if they could hold the dog in retribution for their defeat at the hands of Howe's men. But Washington said no. The dog was an innocent victim of war and held no responsibility for the war or its outcome. He knew all too well how strong the relationship is between a man and his dog. Showing his true character, he arranged for a messenger to return the dog to Howe with a two-line letter. The letter read, General Washington's compliments to General Howe does himself the pleasure to return to him a dog which accidentally fell into his hands and by the inscription on the collar appears to belong to General Howe. This story can be fully documented as a draft of the note still exists. It is written in the handwriting of Washington's aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, and the note can be found in the Washington Papers at the Library of Congress. There's a wonderful children's book out there about General Washington returning Howe's dog, written by an author named Frank Murphy, who does a lot of great historical children's books. And we'll be talking with Frank here the third week of July, so make sure to tune in for that episode at 1001 Heroes. Getting back to Valley Forge, there are a number of statues and monuments in Valley Forge Park, but one of my favorites was the one of Baron von Steuben, which, during my days as a youth exploring the park, was located on Outer Line Drive, just past the Anthony Wayne statue, which overlooks Anthony Wayne Hill. I understand it was moved some years ago to a different location within the park, one which allows von Steuben to watch the parade ground, where he was known to drill military formations with the pride of a proud father and teacher, and his statue reflects that. 
"'His statue stands eight feet tall, "'and he must have seemed eight feet tall at times "'to those young recruits who learned so much from him. "'And I'm not joking about his being a proud father. "'He never married, "'and after the war he actually adopted two young continental soldiers "'who served under him at Valley Forge and Monmouth. "'That story to come in a little while.' Von Steuben arrived on February 23, 1778, with Benjamin Franklin's letter of recommendation in hand, and made an immediate and lasting impression on Washington. Washington met him on the parade field on horseback, watching the strangely dressed entourage of assistants being led by Von Steuben, who was a big man, big enough that a large, flat disc, which was actually a medal the size of a pipe plate, did little to cover the expanse of his chest. All of his men wore uniforms and were dressed smartly. Von Steuben was Prussian, and had arrived in the capacity of a volunteer. He would accept whatever rank Washington assigned him with. Somewhere between February 27th and March 3rd, Von Steuben was treated to his first look at the spectacle that was Washington's army. It was the moment for inspection. When all the cabins had emptied and the entire body of able men had reported to the parade field, Von Steuben made a mental count. The army of which he had been told was comprised of 12,000 men now numbered about 5,000. Von Steuben, of course, didn't know how many men were sick or on leave or were too weak to stand or had deserted. The men tried to stand at attention, shivering. Their clothing was in rags. Most had no boots or shoes. Some had bloody feet. But they cheered Washington as he rode past, and the first thing that hit Von Steuben was that although they had nothing of material value, including uniforms, they had spirit. This, Von Steuben knew, was the unnamed ingredient in every great army. Love for their commander. These men had gone, and would go, through hell to serve Washington. It had been fifteen years since von Steuben had commanded troops. This fact was not included by Franklin in his letter of recommendation, and not known to Washington. But looking at this ragtag bunch of men, and seeing their spirit, he knew he could train them to be a fighting force. He went immediately to work that night to begin the accounting of all supplies and provisions creating files of leave and enlistment, and began the planning for staffing of various offices. Within a week, he had assembled 100 men, a select few chosen from each division, whose sense of discipline had been made clear on the battlefield or on the march. Most were junior officers. All of them were young. Von Steuben marched them to a quiet field, out of sight from the rest of the troops. He lined them up in a column of two, riding his horse down alongside them, "'trying not to notice their sad lack of clothing. "'Behind him, Captains North and Walker, "'both of whom had grown up around German farms "'and could translate German. "'He rode again up to the front of the column, "'sat up stiffly from his horse, "'and said to Captain North, "'Line of battle, with all haste. "'The shout was carried out, "'and the men began to shift their ground "'from the vertical to the horizontal, "'the men gathering in a ragged crowd "'and then spreading out to the sides.' Within a minute or more, they were facing him in two wide rows, and then the men began pulling themselves close to each other, eliminating any gaps in the line. They were looking at him now with satisfied smiles, and he showed no change of expression while saying, Return to column of march. The men began to shift again, but now the lines collapsed into a stumbling mass, one man falling and knocking another to the ground, all along both lines. Realizing how ridiculous they must have looked, some of the men started laughing, even pitching snowballs at one another. Through his translators, von Steuben announced, Men, if this had been a battle, you would not be so concerned with repeating this move. You would all be dead, probably by the bayonets of the Hessians. The laughter stopped. Von Steuben turned to his aides, Captain North and Captain Walker, and ordered, Assume a position at the head of each line. Then he ordered the men, You will follow the steps of the man in front of you. When he turns... "'You will pivot sharply. "'You will do the same. "'When he stops, you will stop. "'When he resumes his march, "'you will resume yours, and not until then. "'Captains North and Walker will begin the shift. "'From column of march to line of battle. "'Now!' "'The two aides made their turns. "'The men closed in behind, following. "'As more of the men in line made their turn, "'the crispness dissolved. "'The men of the rear slowly milling past. "'Not crisp! "'Pivot! "'By damned! We'll do this over and over until we get it right. Von Steuben was sputtering now, his English coming in cuss words, his German following right behind. No, no, better I show you, he said, and got off his horse and grabbed a musket from one of the men. He saw then the rusty bayonet, 
Then, worse yet, a rusty barrel. Von Steuben exploded. This is a disgrace. Before you will complete these lessons, you will learn to care for your weapon. A bayonet is not a tool for you to roast your supper. He pulled the musket close to his chest. Now you will march. Now comes the order to halt. He showed them. Now the order to shift to column. Like this. Pivot. Turn. Crisply. He made the move again, swung his musket up to his chest, and marched with a high swift kick, prancing his way across the field, looking every bit like a professional soldier. He stopped and stood stiffly in the field, in the snow. You are facing the enemy. You will wait for the order. The officer will give you the order to load. Thus. He reached into his belt, pulled an imaginary musket ball out of his cartridge box, and went through the motion of loading the musket. See? The officer will now order you into a firing position. He dropped to one knee and raised his musket to his shoulder. Fire! Bang! Now the enemy is fleeing before you. Your officer orders, charge bayonets. Von Steuben jogged then forward through the snow, his musket pointing straight ahead and making a high-pitched scream while imitating an enemy being bayoneted. Now the enemy has been defeated. He could not stand up to your discipline. Von Steuben said this with a smile. He was now breathing heavily. From across the field he heard cheering and realized that they now had an audience. The cheering spread to the men around him. He handed the musket back to Walker and remounted his horse, which Captain North was holding. "'This amuses you, gentlemen. Enjoy your moment of brevity,' he said in Prussian, as his aide Peter and the lead officers translated. "'But you will perform this drill a hundred times, a thousand times. When you leave this field, you will perform it in your dreams. You will march these steps in your mind while you eat, and when you prepare for each day. When I release you to your regiments, you will perform this in front of your men, and you will be the teacher. I assure you, Howe's men can perform this at night, in their sleep. If you don't think this is important, then you will die fighting. Without drill, an army is nothing more than a mob. Without drill, a soldier is a musket with one ball. When that ball is discharged, there is nothing remaining. That is when you die at the point of a bayonet. Have any of you ever participated in fisticuffs? Several hands came up. I will tell you something to remember. If you ever find yourself in a fist fight, remember this drill. Why? When your opponent begins his wild assault, you take one step back. You wait for the moment. You might even take some blows. But you are skilled. You are disciplined. And you will wait. You focus on your target. You make one solid punch. "'launching it at his most vulnerable point. "'With one sharp blow, you will defeat him. "'It is no different than facing 1,000 men. "'That's the difference between a mob and an army. "'You keep your head. "'You don't waste punches. "'I can assure you, General Howe knows this. "'King Frederick the Great knows this. "'Now you know it. "'It's my duty to prevent you from forgetting it. As the days and weeks went by, von Steuben concentrated on shortening the Prussian manual of arms to one custom-made for Washington's army. There were probably few people more qualified to serve as the American Army's Inspector General and bring a manual of arms to the Continental Army at that time than von Steuben. During the winter of 1778-79, von Steuben prepared regulations for the order and discipline of the troops of the United States, commonly known as the Blue Book. Its basis was the training plan he had devised at Valley Forge. It was used by the United States Army until 1814 and affected U.S. drills and tactics until the Mexican-American War of 1846. Some critics have jumped on von Steuben's questionable history, but often unfairly. This is von Steuben's true background. Born into a military family, Steuben was exposed to war from an early age. At 14 years old, he observed his father directing Prussian engineers in the 1744 siege of Prague. At age 16, he enlisted in the Prussian army, which was considered the most professional and disciplined army in Europe. During his 17 years of military service, Steuben took part in several battles in the Seven Years' War, rose to the rank of captain, and became aide-de-camp to Prussian King Frederick the Great, who was renowned for his military prowess and strategy. Von Steuben's career culminated in his attendance at Frederick's elite school for young military officers, after which he was abruptly discharged from the army in 1763, allegedly by the machinations of a rival. 
he spent the next eleven years as court chamberlain to the prince of Hohenzollern Hetchingen, a small German principality. In 1775, as the American Revolution had begun, Steuben saw a reduction in his salary and sought some form of military work. He missed the army, and unable to find employment in peacetime Europe, he joined the American war effort through mutual French contacts with American diplomats, most notably Ambassador to France, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was a good judge of men and character, and recommended him directly to the American Congress in York, Pennsylvania. As he could only speak and write a small amount of English, von Steuben originally wrote the drills in German, the military language of Europe at the time. His secretary, Duponceau, then translated the drills from German into French, and a secretary for Washington then translated it into English. They did this every single night, so Washington could command his soldiers in the morning. Colonel Alexander Hamilton and General Nathaniel Green were of great help in assisting Steuben in drafting a training program for the Army. The Baron's willingness and ability to work with the men, as well as his use of profanity, in several different languages, made him popular among the soldiers. Steuben introduced a system of progressive training beginning with the school of the soldier, with and without arms, and going through the school of the regiment. This corrected the previous policy of simply assigning personnel to regiments. Each company commander was made responsible for the training of new men, but actual instruction was done by sergeants specifically selected for being the best obtainable. In the earlier part of the war, the Americans used the bayonet mostly as a cooking skewer, or tool, rather than as a fighting instrument. Von Steuben's introduction of effective bayonet charges became crucial. In the Battle of Stony Point, as in the Battle of Yorktown, Continental Army soldiers attacked with unloaded muskets and won the battle solely on Steuben's bayonet training. The first results of von Steuben's training were in evidence at the Battle of Barren Hill, May 20th, 1778, and then again at the Battle of Monmouth in June of 1778. Von Steuben, by then serving in Washington's headquarters, was the first to determine that the enemy was headed for Monmouth. We'll get to the Battle of Monmouth in just a few minutes. You are going to want to know just how valuable von Steuben's drills were to the winning of the Revolution. A little more on von Steuben. In 1780, he sat on the court-martial of the British Army officer Major John André, captured and charged with espionage in conjunction with the defection of General Benedict Arnold. Von Steuben later traveled with Nathaniel Green, the new commander of the Southern Campaign. He quartered in Virginia, since U.S. supplies and soldiers would be provided to the Army from there. Von Steuben would help in the defense of Virginia, fighting the delaying action in the Battle of Blanford. That, by the way, was then under the command of Major General Lafayette. During the spring of 1781, he aided Green in the campaign in the South, culminating in the delivery of 400 Virginia Continentals to Lafayette in June. He was forced to take sick leave, rejoining the Army for the final campaign at Yorktown, where his role was as a commander of one of the three divisions of Washington's troops. In 1783, General von Steuben joined General Knox at Vale's Gate near West Point, and in early 1783 moved to the Verplank homestead at Mount Julian, across the Hudson River from Washington's headquarters in Newburgh. Steuben was there when Washington demobilized the army in 1783, and was working to aid then in the defense plan of the new nation. He was discharged from the military with honor on March 24, 1784. And here's one more fact about von Steuben that very few people know. He had arrived in the United States with his 17-year-old secretary, Peter Stephen Duponceau. At Valley Forge, he formed close relationships with Captains Benjamin Walker and William North, then both military officers in their 20s. Von Steuben formally adopted Walker and North and made them his heirs. Von Steuben had never married and had no children, and he did not care much for his European relatives. Thus, he left his estate to his companions and aides de camp, Walker and North, with whom he had, he said, father-son relationships, treating them as surrogate sons. A third young man, John W. Mulligan, who also considered himself one of von Steuben's sons, inherited his vast library, his collection of maps, and $2,500 in cash. Following von Steuben's death, North divided the property bequeathed to him among his military companions. We'll get to the fruits of von Steuben's training a few minutes from now as Washington's army packs up in June and begins to follow General Clinton's army as it leaves Philadelphia, minus General Howe, who has returned to England to face his critics who believe him a failure for not being able to crush the rebellion in America. Earlier in our story I mentioned the graves and ghosts of Valley Forge. 
in my wanderings through the park with friends my age, I do recall some graves, some marked and some unmarked, but never a full cemetery. The closest military cemetery to Valley Forge, which contains soldiers' bones, is the old Charleston Cemetery, which is located halfway between the park and Yellow Springs, about five miles from Valley Forge. It's a small cemetery with crumbling grave markers and holds many more fallen soldiers than tombstones. The old Charleston Cemetery was located halfway between the winter encampment and the Yellow Springs Hospital. Injured and diseased men were transported back and forth between the encampment and the hospital. Unfortunately, many men did not survive and were left at local cemeteries which were inundated with diseased bodies. The soldiers were often hastily buried in large, unmarked graves to avoid the spread of disease with only a funeral shroud to cover their bodies due to the lack of proper caskets. The unmarked graves of the fallen were thought to be lost forever until a hand-drawn map of the cemetery turned up in a wall at the Chester Springs Hospital during the early 1800s. Another area, also acknowledged as the camp burying ground, was south of Route 23 near the sites now known as Varnum and Huntington's Quarters, where a lone headstone marked with the initials J.W. appeared to stand among many other unmarked graves. The other supposed burial ground was within the arc made by the Outer Line Drive as it winds downhill from Wayne's Woods. An 1898 letter described how this sloping ground had been eroded to reveal the knee bones of soldiers buried in a crouched position. A nearby monument on the right or east side of South Outer Line Drive, if traveling north, marks this area for the unknown soldiers buried at Valley Forge. This small cemetery has only two marked graves and seems to be abandoned and definitely in an out-of-the-way place as the rest of the world has grown round this area. There is no cemetery sign, nor is there an official name for this graveyard. The graves are located at the northwest corner of Wayne's Woods, for those of you who are visiting. The graves are 221 feet to the west of the Unknown Soldiers' Monument, just at the edge of the wood line. There is a fence on the outer border. There is also a virtual catch which represents this burial ground called Forgotten Monument. Parking is available east back at the Anthony Wayne Monument at Anthony Wayne Hill, and it's about a 10-minute walk. In 1901, the National Society of the Daughters of the Revolution of 1776 raised a shaft near the lonely J.W. headstone, which had by then been identified as John Waterman's headstone. Still popularly called the Waterman Monument, this was really dedicated to all the soldiers who sleep in Valley Forge. The Valley Forge chapter of the D.A.R. erected a second monument to the dead in 1911, below the hill surmounted by Wayne's Woods. The monument which represents this burial ground was erected in 1911 by the Valley Forge chapter of the D.A.R., and it reads, In memory of unknown soldiers buried at Valley Forge, 1777-1778, erected by the Valley Forge chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. The Victorian interest in graves naturally led to the creation of Valley Forge ghost stories. Since 1895, there have been reports of ghostly campfires and the spirits of revolutionary soldiers were said to be visible on hillsides on stormy nights. As a boy, I never saw those ghostly spirits. Every summer, though, I was treated to a packed Valley Forge encampment as the Boy Scouts of America used to use it as one of their East Coast summer encampments. Of course, some of us locals couldn't resist nightly visits to some of those tents. Other graves were identified in the 1930s by the Veterans Graves Registration Division of the WPA, the Work Progress Administration, though the basis for their identification is today unknown. As late as 1975, when the Veterans Administration considered locating a cemetery at Valley Forge, it was still believed that digging new graves might disturb the unknown resting places of revolutionary soldiers, so no one has any idea of how many men are actually buried there. The graves and ghosts of Valley Forge remain one of the park's most interesting mysteries. I mention them in this story to honor the unnamed for their sacrifice and the sacrifice of their brothers-in-arms, which ultimately paid for our freedom today. Meanwhile, the training and discipline were continuing through February, March, and April of 1778. The biggest shot in the arm for Washington was France's signing of the Treaty of Alliance and Treaty of Amity and Commerce on February 6, 1778. Word of that spread like wildfire through the encampment, and morale was given a huge boost. With France behind them, they had a chance. Along with their new spirit, the weather slowly began to warm. The Schuylkill River ice flows started breaking up in late March, early April, allowing supplies to arrive by river from Reading, Pennsylvania. 
Shad began to run in the river, and the men were feasting on fish. On May 3rd, Washington ordered all troops to bathe in the cold river for no more than a few minutes, as he believed that a prolonged exposure to water could increase the chance of sickness, while at the same time believing that at least one dip was needed to wash off the filth. At the same time, details were formed to remove dead carcasses and clear the walkways and streets within the encampment. The cabins were ordered cleaned and aired out, and a sense of order was restored. Von Steuben was busy drilling the men on marching in column and forming and reforming lines. This they had to get perfect before the lessons in firing could come. When the right time came, he asked his 100 corps officers, How many of you can claim with certainty that you have ever actually shot an enemy you were looking at? According to this story, several dozen hands went up. Many others did not. He continued, It is disciplined fire, concentrated on a single point, that wins the fight in an open field. All of you firing together at my command. First one rank, and then as you reload, the other. And by God, you will at least fire two rounds per minute, every one of you. That means every fifteen seconds, your two lines will sweep the field before you. And he gestured toward the open field. Fifteen seconds. That means never again will you shoot, and then before you can reload, the enemy comes upon you with bayonets. For as one line reloads, the second line stands ready to smash down any attempt by the enemy to charge. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Turn your back, and you die. Fire out of turn, and you die. You must hold the line. You fire when ordered. I still like to do my fighting hunker down, said one soldier. Safe behind a wall or tree. Von Steuben looked at the soldier and nodded. How many fights have you been in? he asked. I was at Paoli. And how many of your comrades were bayoneted to death while trying to hide behind a wall or tree? There was no response. Von Steuben stepped closer to him and spoke loud enough for all to hear. He wasn't trying to embarrass the man. He was trying to teach him. I understand how you feel, he said. Believe me, I do. I fought in the Seven Years' War. I faced enemy lines at fifty paces and had to stand firm and not flinch. If we broke or laid down, they would have slaughtered us like sheep. In such a fight, there is only one way to fight back. You hold your line. You hold your line. The words came out crisp and clear. The men nodded. They were getting it. Hold your line, and then give back to them as hard as they hit you. This is a battle of nerves. Nerves and endurance. Let one hand feel that it is stronger in courage, in firepower, in its will to stand and deliver. And I promise you, men, the other hand will weaken, collapse, and run away. In one month, you'll be ready. Then you'll teach your comrades. We may have shared some laughs today, but tomorrow all that changes. Step out of line tomorrow, and I'll break a damn stick over your heads. If you waste my time, or will not learn, I'll replace you with someone who can do the job. Do we understand each other? We have one month to teach you what takes a year to teach a Prussian soldier. I think you're made of sterner stuff than those Prussians who some of you fear. In one month, you'll be ready to face the best of them. But it will take everything you've got. Dismissed. Von Steuben walked to his horse and rode off with his staff and Azor following. Then came June. The Marquis de Lafayette, with his money and with French troops, had arrived. Now Count d'Estaing, with his powerful fleet, were in the American waters. And now in June, General Gates, with the remainder of the Northern Army, had arrived to join the Army of Washington. Washington's spies in Philadelphia brought him news that Howe had tendered his resignation and General Clinton was now commanding the forces in Philadelphia. And he was leaving Philadelphia, headed for New York. New York, which was feeling very vulnerable to attack. There were only 5,000 British troops now in New York City, and no one was sure how many men Gates commanded in northern New York. One thing was sure, since the American victory at Saratoga, the tide had swung to the rebels. More men were signing up. The loyalist presence was dwindling. And now France had thrown its weight behind the upstart rebels. The day that the English abandoned Philadelphia, on June 13, 1778, the American army marched out of Valley Forge to shadow the British, waiting for any opportunity to strike and fight. The route they were to take led to Trenton, New Jersey, 
and the future of the Continental Army lay solidly in their hands. Although our story today is a story of Valley Forge, it is also a story of the building of a true fighting force out of the wreck that was the Continental Army that marched into Valley Forge in December of 1777. As Washington's army marched north and east out of Pennsylvania, following the western side of the Delaware River at a safe distance, Clinton's army followed the south side of the Delaware River, its destination Freehold, New Jersey, and then New York City. Von Steuben, loosely following Morgan's men, whose job it was to trail the British out of Philadelphia and picket their flanks, entered the recently vacated Philadelphia with his contingent of men, which now included Captain Vogel and Captain Ben Walker, who is now serving as von Steuben's aide-de-camp and translator, in addition to Duponceau and one dozen mounted dragoons whose job it was to get them out of Philadelphia in one piece. The city was in confusion. Thousands of loyalists had fled, fearing reprisals, and many were carrying all their possessions in wagons that accompanied Clinton's forces as they rode toward New York City, rendering Clinton's movements extremely slow. Von Steuben and the American patriots could see that vengeance was being wreaked upon Loyalist families everywhere they looked. Several women had their hair hacked off. Others were tarred and feathered, some with hot tar, which usually either killed or disfigured the victim, or cold tar, and those tar and feather victims were being carried on rails, meaning their hands and feet were tied to a rail, being carried by two men who were bent upon making a public example of them. In many cases their names had been painted on signs which were pinned to their bodies. Once outside the city, von Steuben caught up with Daniel Morgan on the trail of the British. Morgan had already gathered much intelligence from captured stragglers. He had counted dozens of dead Hessians on the side of the road, overloaded with packs on their backs and unable to take the intense heat. Morgan's men had captured other Hessians and British regulars who had deserted. His men were taking a deadly toll on the British in small skirmishes, burning bridges, destroying wells in the path of Clinton's advancing army, and delaying the enemy's movements. The British caravan was said to contain 3,000 wagons and stretch for miles. Clinton had split it into two columns, one commanded by Niphausen and the other by Cornwallis. The heat was scorching. Morgan tried to get a sense of what Washington was thinking, but von Steuben wasn't there to give orders. Privately, he knew that General Henry Lee had recently joined Washington's army, and Washington, despite warnings from his senior officers, and even Martha, had made Lee his number two. Lee was an old-timer who had fought as a British officer in the French-Indian War. At the outbreak of the Revolution, he had cast his lot with the rebels. He was captured early by the British, and just recently was released on a prisoner swap. His disrespect for Washington's army was evident to everyone but Washington. He constantly downgraded the Continental Army, showing absolute respect and fear for the British fighting forces, while showing little respect for the Patriots. Here in New Jersey, Lee was insisting that Washington should not attempt to take on Clinton's army, and if he did, he'd be wiped out. Anthony Wayne, Green, and Lafayette insisted on taking the fight to Clinton. They said the men were ready. Lee, who was not present at Valley Forge until the final few days, didn't share the same enthusiasm. Von Steuben, later in the day, reconnoitered outside of Allentown. Then, as the day came to a close, he found Morgan again. Or actually, Morgan found him. They're moving east, Morgan told him, and then provided what he knew. Von Steuben knew that Morgan was an excellent scout. Von Steuben's job now was to get this intelligence to Washington. He could see it all now. An exhausted and demoralized enemy. Its lines strung out for miles along a single road, "'meeting the coiled fist of Washington's army, "'thirsting for victory, "'striking the British line right in the middle where it hurt. "'Best of all, von Steuben would be right in the middle of it. "'Glory days relived. "'Within twenty-four hours, Washington was moving toward Monmouth. "'At camp that night, he issued clear, concise orders "'to his second-in-command, General Lee. "'These were his orders. "'I expect your advance guard to have broken camp before dawn. "'Be completely formed.' and on the road. You are to advance with all possible speed directly upon the British forces, now encamped on the high ground west of Monmouth Courthouse. Whether they are preparing to move or not, you are to attack with alacrity and elan, your regiment properly deployed into battle order, as they've been trained to do this past winter. You are to bring about a general engagement regardless of enemy disposition, be they preparing to retreat or hold high ground, 
"'bringing about a general engagement. "'The enemy will be fixed in position, "'enabling the forces with me "'to fall upon their flank and rear.' "'Lee answered cautiously. "'Way too cautiously. "'You do realize, sir, "'that the combined forces of the enemy equal, "'and perhaps exceed, our own?' "'Our men are trained,' Washington answered, "'slapping the table with his hand. "'They're ready for a fight. "'They've endured a frozen hell, "'and they're ready to stand and face the enemy. "'You will lead them to victory. "'Do we understand each other?' "'Washington nodded to Alexander Hamilton, "'who had dictated the order, "'and Hamilton handed it to Lee. "'The following day at Freehold, "'Monmouth County, New Jersey, "'June 28, 1778, "'It was sweltering hot. "'The two armies began to send skirmish lines forward. "'Lee, who was supposed to be ordering his troops into battle, "'was standing inside a crowd of officers, "'not giving orders, and appearing to be in a state of confusion. "'Lafayette was with Anthony Wayne's regiment, "'and they were pressing the British hard, carrying the fight. "'The British were backing up. "'Line after line of Wayne's riflemen were standing their ground, "'firing alternately, making the shots count. "'Von Steuben's training was paying off.' The Continental Army was going toe-to-toe with the British, and they were gaining ground. At that point, Wayne ordered Lafayette to ask for reinforcements. Lafayette rode back and spotted General Lee and rode up to him. Sir, he said, General Wayne had requested reinforcements. He is pressing the attack. Lee seemed strangely calm at that moment and looked past Lafayette like he didn't exist. Where is General Scott? he asked. Did he not receive my order to march to the left? All around Lee, aides were scrambling in and out, seeking orders and getting none. Confusion reigned all around Lee, who seemed calm but totally clueless. Lee then turned to Lafayette, finally recognizing him. Did you say Wayne? What is he doing out there? Did I not order him to pull back? He is certainly too far in advance. Lafayette looked at Lee with shock and disbelief. General Lee... Wayne's brigade has driven the enemy. If we provide reinforcements, he is certain to carry that part of the field. General Knotts's cannon are in a perfect position for him right now. They must be protected. Lee seemed speechless. By now, Lafayette was shouting at him. Sir, we must move closer. The enemy is sure to counterattack. We must move closer now. Lee stared past Lafayette into the smoke. He muttered, We must retreat. We cannot stand against them. We must retreat. He was shaking his head sadly. Lines of men began to break. Officers tried to stop them, asking, Why are you running? Who told you to retreat? General Lee did, sir, was their answer. Then Washington, moving toward the front, began running into soldiers who were literally running away from the fight. He stopped one of them and asked why they were running. Order, sir. General Lee has called for retreat. Washington was enraged. He soon found Lee. Lee's face was expressionless. He was a man in shock. Washington shouted at him. What is the meaning of this? Why are these men retreating? Why is there such confusion? Lee stared blankly at him, seeming surprised that Washington was shouting at him, and then turned in his saddle, trying to find the words to speak. Washington was red hot with anger. What have you done, Mr. Lee? Then Lee smiled. A sarcastic look came to his face. He said, There's no confusion here. There's been considerable difficulty this morning arising from disobedience of my orders. Sir, I have received contradictory intelligence. The enemy has confounded my every move. The officers in my command have failed me in every respect. The ground over which the fight is to be made is wholly unacceptable. It's a plain so large that no army can make a show for itself. The enemy's grenadiers shall surely have destroyed us. As you know, sir, this entire operation was taken against my opinion. Washington gripped his reins tightly, glaring at the man's smugness, despising all the excuses. He wanted to dismount, grab Lee by his scrawny neck, and twist his head off. Instead, Washington said to Lee, Mr. Lee, as of this moment, I'm relieving you of your command. You'll place yourself at the rear of this column. Now! Washington then reined his horse around and rode toward the front, finding General Wayne and Lafayette and ordering them back into the fight. Within a half an hour, Wayne's men, firing and reloading as a disciplined unit, completely destroyed the King's best cavalry unit as the fight and the hot day wore on. Knotts' guns poured devastation onto the British, while Green's men 
Sterling's regiment and Morgan's men, with von Steuben fighting in the thick of it, fought the British to a standstill. Had it not been for Lee's traitorous actions, they would have won a decisive victory by that night. As it was, they owned the field by night time. The men slept. The wounded were cared for. The next morning, the 29th of June, Washington's troops woke early and returned to the field, finding only the bodies of British soldiers and horses lying all around the battle area. The British had retreated during the night. Washington's army had stood up against what was then the most powerful army on earth and owned the field at the end of the fight. The fight at Monmouth Courthouse had been a test of von Steuben's training and American courage, and from this test a new army would emerge. The British had taken a beating at Monmouth Courthouse. Clinton's army had retreated to New York, and Washington's spies in New York delivered the news to him that British strength had been reduced by 2,000 men. Half of that number were casualties from Monmouth, but far worse for the British was the fact that the Hessians had deserted in astounding numbers, many slipping back to small German communities in Pennsylvania. With the British off the mainland in the northern half of the colonies, the farmers were supplying the Continental troops again. There was much more war to come, but from Valley Forge onward, the men who were fighting it knew in their hearts that it could, and would, be won. The National Memorial Arch is inscribed in many locations. On the front of the memorial is that quote from George Washington's letter to Governor George Clinton while at Valley Forge. Naked and starving as they are, we cannot enough admire the incomparable patience and fidelity of the soldiery. Located within the arch of the monument is a quotation from a speech given by Henry Arnett Brown, an American writer and orator. Brown gave his speech at the 100-year anniversary of Valley Forge. The quotation reads, And here in this place of sacrifice, in this veil of humiliation, in this valley of the shadow, of that death out of which the life of America rose, regenerate and free, let us believe, with an abiding faith, that to them, union will seem as dear, and liberty as sweet, and progress as glorious, and that the institutions which have made us happy, preserved by the virtue of our children, shall bless the remotest generation to the time to come. Also located on the back of the monument are the last names of the American generals during the Revolutionary War. Commander-in-Chief, George Washington. Major Generals, DeKalb, Mifflin, Green, Steuben, Lafayette, Sterling, Lee, Sullivan. Brigadier Generals, Armstrong, Patterson, Duportal, Poor, Glover, Scott, Huntington, Smallwood, Knox, Barnum, Learned, Wayne, McIntosh, Whedon, Maxwell, Woodford, Muhlenberg, Pulaski. As a footnote, we often get our history from family records, and we add this brief description of Colonel Bigelow's role in the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse for historical interest. You might recall Colonel Bigelow from earlier in the story. The Battle of Monmouth, so called by the Americans, was fought in Freehold, Monmouth County, New Jersey, situated 35 miles southeast from Trenton. The commander-in-chief had detached two brigades to the support of General Wayne, who had been sent on as a vanguard, and had already come up with the British rear. These two brigades were commanded by Generals Lee and Lafayette. At this time, Colonel Bigelow was under the command of General Lafayette. This vanguard of the American army had so severely galled the rear of the British that General Clinton resolved to wheel his whole army and put the Americans to flight at the point of the bayonet. For a short time, the conflict was severe. At length, General Lee gave way, for which he was afterwards court-martialed and suspended for one year. The light horse, also, of Lafayette's brigade gave way, and nothing to that celebrated vanguard but Colonel Bigelow's regiment, with two or three other regiments, remained. It was said that if General Lee had stood his ground, as he might have done, a decisive victory would have been gained. Colonel Bigelow's regiment was the last to quit the field. It was said by one of Colonel Bigelow's men, who was an intimate acquaintance of the writer of this article, and who was wounded at that time, that, at the time he fell, Colonel Bigelow seized his musket from him, and fought more like a tiger than a man. This man was Mr. Solomon Parsons, whose son now occupies and owns the same farm on which his father died, on Apricot Street, in this city. Colonel Bigelow, with his regiment, had to retire, but was soon met by Washington, with the main army, who was moving up to the rescue. After the troops of Lee and Lafayette had been rallied, the whole army turned upon the enemy, and then came the tug-of-war, for Greek met Greek. 
the English, flushed with the advantages they had got, and the Americans under the command of their own beloved Washington, many of whom had never fought before by his side, were determined to retake the field or die in the attempt. The conflict was now terrible indeed, and in the midst of flame and smoke and metal hail, Bigelow was conspicuous. The English were repulsed and driven to the woods. The Americans retake the field. Night comes on. The whole American army rests on their arms through the night that they may renew the attack with the dawn of day. Day comes on, and the British army has fled, as one of their officers said by moonlight, but it so happened that the moon set that night at ten o'clock, being but four days old. Such was the issue at the Battle of Freehold, or of Monmouth, as the Americans call it. We have now traced the military history of Colonel Bigelow from April 1775 to June 28, 1778, and there the family history ends. There are many, many more heroes of the American Revolution, both sung and unsung, and we'll be getting to their stories in the future. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This has been an honor and a privilege to bring you these stories, and I can promise you there will be many more in the future. America may not be a perfect country, but it is a good country that champions freedom, not only here, but around the world. Learning American history, true American history, should be the goal of every man, woman, and child who lives in and enjoys the freedoms that our forebears fought for and often died for. Their names and their stories are important, and they matter. God bless those who have fought and continue the fight to keep us free. We'll be back next week Sunday night with a brand new story. Between now and then, please take a moment to share the show with a friend and send us a review. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Thank you for being here on this journey with us.